Welcome to Connected Communication, a podcast exploring the intriguing interplay between language, culture, and the brain. Your language is your identity, I read in a recent LinkedIn comment. A couple of days later, I felt my temper flare reading a post from an English speaker whose identity as a teacher rests in the presumption that being a native speaker of English means there'd be a premium on his teaching services in Spain. Now, if you've listened to my content before, you'll know, for me, native, well, it's not a word I like to use, first of all, when I think of speaking English or languages, and I certainly do not think being a native speaker of English makes you a better teacher, even a good teacher at that. I've been steeping the ingredients for an episode, or a few, on language and identity for a month or two, so these occurrences with respect to identity accessed my awareness. I've been thinking even too about my identity in the podcast and microphones. Again, if you've been listening to my content or you follow the podcast and you come back and listen all the time, thank you. First of all, I really appreciate you. If you're a new listener, welcome. I'm in a phase of having just taken over production and navigating learning audio editing. And I am learning very quickly about what mics pick up and what they don't pick up and that I'm certainly going to need a new mic. But also how I change a bit sometimes the resonance of my voice and the resonance of how I speak to fit the microphone and fit making audio that will sound good on the microphone. So hopefully now when I get the new one, that's not going to have to be done (laughs) and I can speak a little more naturally. But I've decided today to speak as naturally as possible rather than be overly focused on balancing the audio. I don't mean to not have good audio, obviously. I really want that to come through as clear and, and crisp as possible. But I also want you to hear me. So again, thank you for being here. I do have a an, an identity of authenticity, although again, I know that that's a, a buzzword. The audio will continue to shift and increase and, and improve over the coming weeks as I figure it out. So back to this idea of identity and language and identity. After these two things happened with the comment on LinkedIn and the, the person on Facebook, two strange things happened on the same day, last Wednesday a day when my schedule doesn't really permit me much social media space. First, I was added to a group chat on LinkedIn that either got hacked or was used with some AI app that went haywire. And it was promoting an article someone in my network had posted. Now, I'm not a fan of being added to groups without being asked. But I checked my frustration flares before reacting and took a deep breath and decided not to respond until later that night. A few hours into the day, I got a message from a client telling me they couldn't attend the Zoom call I'd set up that morning for that same morning. Although they didn't say so, I'm sure they were also pretty annoyed by the fact that a call was scheduled without their permission or request, then sent to their calendar. Not only did I not have time to respond, I had no idea what they were talking about. I hadn't scheduled a call. I had scheduled one for someone else for later in the week. So I presume there must have been a tech glitch. But I was awfully embarrassed. I would never blindly schedule a call with a client. That type of behaviour doesn't align with my identity as a coach. And then, that evening, I clicked back into LinkedIn and saw a message in the group that I'd been added to, sent under my name. When I read it, 
after questioning truthfully for a second or two if I'd sent it, I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but when you have a long day, you you, you see something and you think, oh, I don't remember doing that. But so I, I saw this message, it's like, did, did I send that? No, I didn't read the article. And then I read the message again. And what absolutely confirmed for me that I hadn't sent it was that its tone. It didn't match my communication identity. I could tell that it had been written by AI. It's International Mother Language Day. On the week this episode goes live, to celebrate it, I'm hosting a workshop for a global tech firm. So I've been doing lots of thinking about language, perspectives and identity. I first heard about International Mother Language Day when I was living in Dublin in 2018 and saw an advert for the Mother Tongues Festival in Tala. Its goal was to showcase Ireland's rich artistic and cultural tapestry and connect people through the power of language. A few years beforehand, I'd written my master's thesis looking into the factors which influenced immigrants to Ireland to establish businesses and focused on immigrants whose first language wasn't English. Language barriers in the Irish job market were a major element of my research. As someone who grew up in the arts and had been in the English language teaching industry for 10 years nearly, supporting and guiding learners from all over the world, the theme of the festival resonated with me. The festival is in its sixth year this year. It's hosted by a social enterprise called Mother Tongues, set up by a lady called Dr. Francesca Lamorgia after I think around 10 or so years researching bilingualism. The aim is to empower bilingual children through creativity and arts so they can grow up confident in their linguistic and cultural identity. And this isn't a, an ad or a sponsorship or anything for them. I just think it's a fantastic concept. It looks like a brilliant festival. Some of the activities that they have on look really good fun. And so I wanted to just mention it there. I think it's a, a nice thing to do. If you are in Ireland, I recommend going and checking it out. But where does linguistic and cultural identity come from? And how is it shaped? Well, that's too big a question for me to answer in a 30-minute or 40-minute podcast episode, I know. And I can't answer it alone. Or for anybody else, really. But I can explore it. When my subconscious started feeding me ideas about identity over the last week or so, and particularly last weekend as I mopped my floors in my apartment, I mind-mapped 11 different identity phrases. And these are just the ones related to identity as the fact of being, the recognition of things or of the self. Identity has a few other meanings. We have identity by itself and used with other words. Identity care, identity selection, social identity, extended identity, brand identity, true identity, mistaken identity. To identify something, a body or a type of insect, type of spider, a category, for example. This is quite typical of the brain to do. To identify as, as a what or as a who, as female and male, as, in one of my favourite pink songs, a renegade. To identify with, someone or something, and this is a pretty long list. We identify with a lot of different things, eh? With feelings people, patterns, emotions, places, accents, objects, abilities, situations, experiences, concepts, songs, clothing, choices, 
the list there is pretty endless. To identify someone or something as, or not to. Identify as heterosexual, as goth, as emo. To, as I did for many, many years, identify as being bad at science and math. To identify as incapable. Identification. You can tell here that I'm doing a bit of work on Cambridge exams, can't you? (laughs) Word formation 101. Prepositions can be added there to identification and different words which will change the meaning again. To be identified by the police, for instance, or a neighbour when you're climbing out the window of a lover's house. And then a bit like the example at the beginning, identity with an object or identity with an object before it. Identity theft. Identity shift. Identity politics. Identity disorder. Identity crisis. Self-identity. Shape identity to control identity. External identity to reset your identity. Core identity. To be identified as or with. So before we identified as ourselves, but now we're being identified as by somebody else. To be identified as a divorcee, as promiscuous, as soft, abrasive, sweet. With Satanism, with sex. Hip-hop artists are often identified as bad boys. Identified with sex groups after concerts. People and women going back to have these crazy parties that there's probably sex and drugs and alcohol all involved in. In 2019, we turned to Dublin and my sister was identified in the audience by you, God, as someone who might be worth bringing back to the hotel after the concert. So she got his number. And next thing she rang me, I was at the concert as well. I'm after getting you, God's number. Are we going back to the hotel? Like, yeah, obviously we're going to do that. So off we go. Concert ends. We went to a bar for a drink first to decide on our attack, our plan of attack. Figured out where the hotel was and went off on this adventure. Got to the hotel. Of course, there's people in the lobby and you have to make sure that you can get in past them and stuff. And young DB was there. So I'm not going to say the curse word because I'm thinking of putting the podcast on YouTube in the future. And I'm pretty sure YouTube doesn't allow what the world might call bad language. But if you were ever a fan of Wu-Tang or you know who they are, you'll remember ODB, Old Dirty, one of the best rappers ever. And he has a son who's now with Wu-Tang. So young DB was there in the lobby and we go, we're chatting to him for a few minutes and then we got into the back bar and there they are. Not everybody, but a few of them saw it. It was quite surreal, first of all, but it wasn't at all what we expected. You know, we expected to land into this madness, loads of women, music, noise, and it was calm as you like. Rizzo was sitting at a table in the middle of the room with four or five other lads, one of his mentors, playing chess. Inspector Deck was sitting at the bar, so I hop up at the bar beside Inspector Deck and sat there drinking Baileys all night. And this sounds ridiculous, but it's true. I sat there drinking Baileys all night with Inspector Deck, in and out for a smoke every now and again with you, God, and another fella called Power. Lovely lads. Really sound. 
dead calm. No bother. And then next thing my sister wasn't there. And I wouldn't identify her as someone who'd go off home without telling me that she was going home. But sure, we'd been out all night at this stage. So when I couldn't find her, naturally my brain went into automatic overdrive. And I went from calm to associating the possibility that someone had taken her to a bedroom or something for sex because we were out with a group of, of hip-hop artists and that's what hip-hop artists tend to be associated with. So off I go to find her. It turned out she had gone home, was done, just got to a point where, okay, the night's over for me. The Americans might call this an Irish goodbye. So I went off home myself. The next morning, I got a message from Inspector Deck and a phone call from one of their handlers, both checking that she had been found and everything was okay. And I couldn't believe it. Again, that identification. I didn't identify them as people who would do that, would actually be that interested and care that much. It totally and utterly flipped my mind on how I identify certain people based on, of course, the media attitude that is created around them. So big love to Wu-Tang, big love to them for letting us come in and spend that incredible night having the crack, drinking babies <laughs> with Inspector Day. It's mental when I think of the story. But big bigger bigger love for the respect that they showed and, and the care that they showed. When I was fourteen or fifteen, my best friend at the time and I were on the other side of sober one night and decided it'd be a fun idea to tag our friendship forever. We did it with the lighter, heating the metal part at the top before branding each other for life. It looks like an upside down smiley on my arm to this day. I'm pretty sure she had a third degree burn. We became friends because we identified with each other. On the first week of secondary school, our class was doing introductions. When it got to me, I shared the story about how my siblings and I had convinced our parents to let us name our house Cypress Hill. C-Y-P-R-E-S-S. For us, it was after the band. For our parents, because there was now a row of cypress trees outside and we lived at the top of a slight hill. When I told the story, she blurted out that her brother's fish's name was Snoop Fishy Fish. Connection number one. We found out very soon that my aunt was her sister's best friend. Small world. Are threads of identity woven through generations? Identity is a tag, a label. A mark like a brand burnt on an animal's hide. Except animals don't have a choice when being branded. They're put in a pen and imprinted on with an iron. Marked as property. People aren't property. Yet we cling to labels like Jew clings to the thread of a spider's web. We attach. One of the things identity becomes attached to is language. Research in the area of language identity explores how people see themselves in the world. Language and identity have been intertwined for centuries. Language was used to separate lords and ladies from the peasantry. French was the language of the courts in England for hundreds of years before English was made the language of the courts. English was used as a weapon and a tool in Ireland. You could only access education if you spoke English. You were punished 
for speaking Irish. You'd often hear an older Irish person say, it was battered out of me when talking about Irish. And it quite literally was. Children had to wear a stick around their necks called a bata scort, a tally stick. Every time they spoke Irish, a notch was marked into the stick. At the end of the day, the notches would be counted and they'd get punished. As sadness would have it, when Irish was being revived and taught in schools again, the same thing happened. Students would get a lick of the strap or their knuckles wrapped with a ruler if they made a mistake with the language. And this practice went on right up to when I was at school. We had a headmaster. Rest his soul now, I'd better say, like a good superstitious Irish Gersha. He used to clatter us with the pointer, a thick wooden stick about the length of an arm, if we misbehaved in class, which we did a lot because we started taking sport out of annoying him. But it did nothing to help us have Irish. That's how we talk about language in Ireland. We say we have Irish. Ta gwaelga aram. A meal along gwaelga aram anymore. I don't have a lot of Irish anymore. But once I've got my Spanish down a bit better, I'll be reviving my Irish with Nunchur Molly. Go back a few episodes and you'll hear me chat with her about Irish. In episode 6, I talk more about how English took over as the language of Ireland. So I won't rehash that here now. If you do want a bit more on it, I've got another video I did about Hiberno-English uploaded on the resources you get if you decide to become a a supporter of the podcast. You can click the link below in the show notes. This is part of my job. I want it to be a big part of my business. So supporting me really helps me to keep this going, to create the podcast for everybody for free. It's cheaper than a pot of tea and a scone in Bewley's per month. So if you'd spot me a cuppa at a table, if you saw me there, you might consider doing the same with the podcast. I'd be really grateful. Plus, it's not just giving me support. You do get access to over 170 different lessons on English pronunciation, public speaking, brain-based communication, and a lot of different areas. If you're so inclined to develop those skills. This is my third or fourth go at recording the podcast this week. Now, I should have paid attention to the signs when it wasn't working the first few times. There's always more to learn if something isn't going the way it was intended. That's the way I think anyway. We had the Brian Dowling, Ivan Yates fiasco in Ireland this week. This, I reckon, is why the recordings didn't work before now, because they needed to get this in. The two of them ended up on the telly, shaking hands in the worst example of Irish pride you could ever witness. They were proud of the fact that they could speak little or no Irish. If anybody's seen Father Ted, you can imagine Father Dugan now holding up a sign that says, down with that sort of thing. But was it really such a bad thing to happen? I argue not. One of the best ways to spur the Irish on to do anything is to tell us we can't. We have a wonderful capacity as a wee island of people to show detractors just what we can do. Most especially when they believe we can't. I'm what you might call an Irish thoroughbred. Now I'm not a horse, I know. But my surname dates back to 14th century Mayo, the west of Ireland. I spent a lot of time in Roscommon as a child, out on the bogs, 
and sitting with the wee old lady who lived up the road from my grand-aunt and uncle in Ballinroe, listening to stories, breathing in the rich, damp scent of turf. My grandfather was a Gwilgur, an Irish speaker, but regretfully never spoke Irish to us growing up. My cousin-in-law has raised all of her children through Irish. Fair play to her. At school, I loved Irish, but it was battered out of me, mentally and physically. My first Irish teacher at secondary school was a, I'll leave out the curses this week, a feckin' nut job. And listen, if you're American listening to this, feck is not a bad word in Ireland. It's like sugar. So she was a nut job. She'd wholly card you if you got things wrong and make a show of you in front of the class and moved to from Honours Irish down to Pass Irish to get away from her. And there I flourished. Fabulous teacher. But I was a bit of a mad joke, as we'd say in Ireland, when I was a teenager. You were lucky to get me to study during the school year, never mind go to a Gaeltacht to study in the summer. A Gaeltacht is an area of Ireland where Irish is spoken and they have these special schools for kids to go to in the summer to improve their language. They should have sold them differently to me, told me I'd meet boys and spend the summer in the wilds of Ireland's west by the sea. I'd have jumped at the chance to go then. Over the years, I've dipped in and out of learning again. But I let life get in the way. Now, I love exploring how the Irish language has influenced our English, Hiberno-English. I keep circling away from it and back again. But just like the country, she keeps calling me back. At my core is Irish, Irishness, the fire of the female warrior, the heart of the healer, the grit of the gurrier. Aspects of Irish certainly shape how I speak. The poetic prose of generations flows through my veins and was nurtured in me all my life by my mother through stories and speech and drama training and by my father through song. I'm tied to the land of Ireland even if I no longer live there. Did the language shake my identity? Or did the loss of it? That's an expedition of understanding I'm still on. I mentioned before research on language and identity. The study of linguistic relativity, put simply, refers to how language shapes thoughts and perceptions. Colour perception is often looked at. The red of the fox in Ireland is not the same as the red of the brake lights on a car, for example. Two words distinguish the colours, Rua and Jarag. Rua is the red of animal hair, while Jarag is the red of paints or objects. How we identify with agency and ownership is also different across languages. You see there now how I used we. It's more typical in English to take on the characteristic of something. An age, I am 40. Or identify the agent, my bag broke. Than it is for Spanish speakers, for example. Or I broke my bag even, probably would be the agent in there. In Spanish we'd say, tengo 40 años. I have 40 years. Or la mochila se rompió. The bag, it broke. We see this with feelings in Irish. Tobron arum. There's sadness upon me. There was a great song by the Dubliners. Well, it was sung by Ronnie Drew of the Dubliners. 
the humour is on me now. In other words, I'd be inclined towards something now, but I might not be in a little while, so you'd better act fast. Feelings flow like tides, washing on and off us, like the lapping of a wave on the shore. We don't keep them or own them. Language shapes how we experience the world. But at what point does it become part of our identity? And does acquiring new languages as we get older reshape that identity somehow? When I speak Spanish, and I'm not fluent yet, but I'm not bad, I can be more emphatic in how I express my opinion. When I was learning Polish, and this was now to about elementary level, I noticed my deference increase. Polish uses very polite forms towards strangers, so I acted differently when addressing them, even though I only had a bit of the language. I say things like pan and pani. It's a very particular word that you use in front of male or female. When I was able to speak some Mandarin while living in China, I took on the behaviours of speakers I was surrounded by and allowed my voice to adapt as best I could to those I was listening to. I'd be somewhat forceful when bargaining, and careful not to seem like an unaware tourist. Always respectful, of course. But how I behave in these languages is as much about the culture of communication as it is about language, possibly more. Spaniards are what we call in the culture-active model, multi-active, emotional, dialogue-oriented, talkative. The Poles and French are less so, though more so than the slightly more linear-active Irish, who are somewhat more inclined to think momentarily before responding, using less emotion, and we focus a little bit more on facts over feelings. Now, all of this is individual as well, so before you go jumping down my neck saying, what are you talking about? The Irish are really emotional. So are the French. The French are more emotional than the Irish would be. Understanding a language and its culture changes how we understand the world. When we mould our thinking to alternative structures and ideas, communication can become more complex or be simplified. We have what's called high and low context communication. America is one of the lowest context countries in the world, very direct. You understand what's being said without having to read into it. Whereas go a little more a little further across the spectrum and you have France with the double entendre and you have to read more deeply to understand what's being meant. France isn't the highest context country in the world, but it's certainly a lot higher context than the US. Structurally, language can be more simplified or complex. Polish doesn't have phrasal verbs. And for anyone listening who doesn't know what a phrasal verb is, things like sit down, stand up, set off, where a verb is used with a particle and it changes the meaning of the verb. So if we set something versus we set off for something. So I found myself having to learn the single verbs in English for the typical phrasal verbs I'd use before being able to find the word in Polish. Alternatively, I might learn the Polish verb more easily because as soon as I realised it represented a single verb in English, I'd see how much sense it made to use it and get an emotionally charged connection to the practicality of its use. When we know more languages, 
and see how different languages are structured to explain certain concepts, feelings or approaches. The shape of our world changes. But as I asked before, does our identity change? Do we change at the core when we learn to see the world through another language? The core of something is its central part, its heart. Earth's core, an apple core, core identity. At what point is our core identity shaped? And does that core identity change as we experience the world? When I saw the comment written in my name, my identity felt compromised. When I felt embarrassed about the unsolicited meeting request, my identity felt compromised. That's not something I would do or say, I said to myself. That's not how I behave. That's not how I communicate. As I said before, I knew the comment had been written by AI. I use ChatGPT to reformulate my podcast scripts into summaries for my LinkedIn articles, then change the articles into my tone of voice. I know what AI speak sounds like. It's linear, lacks emotion, and doesn't synthesize information well across sources, even when articles seem like they've been written by people. When researching for this episode, Many of the articles I read were clearly written by ChatGPT. Language, communication and the meaning of identity are being reshaped every day. Core identity is defined differently, depending on where you read about it. One definition states that it's determined by beliefs adopted from childhood, about what is right or wrong and who the person is. Another states that it's determined by the attributes that make you unique, skills, values and behaviours. It's the age-old question of, who are you? I'm of the thinking that there is no who, but that's a philosophical question for a different episode. When I was coming to the point of leaving my last relationship, one of the things which helped me realise I needed to was the lack of integrity I felt internally. I was coaching people on how to develop their lives and careers but not truly living what I was coaching. Integrity is one of my highest values. It's part of my identity. That doesn't change no matter what language or culture I live in. My core doesn't change. If I'm pressed to a point in another language or culture to change, my body says no. My core erupts. A bit like an apple starts to rot from the inside out. If you'd seen me in 2021, you wouldn't recognise me as the woman I had been a few years beforehand, or am back to being now. My core identity was being suppressed, and my body erupted. I'd gone through enough physical change in my lifetime up to then, to know I wasn't going to let suppression overcome me again. Does that core identity come from generations of suppression in Ireland? How deep? does the idea of identity go? My identity can change if I allow it to. It can become incongruent when I stop heeding my instincts and allow others to shape how I think, feel and behave. When I'm being challenged to change in ways that don't align with my core identity. When I put myself in situations which force behaviour that's not coherent with what I deem to be acceptable. When I start becoming ill 
I have to look at myself and the decisions I'm making, and I'll eventually walk away. That's not to say I'm not open to reshaping my thinking or behaviours. I've done so many times, choosing to do so through learning about different cultures, particularly living in them. But it's also how I know my core identity doesn't change across languages. No matter what language I'm using to show up in the world, my language doesn't change. My language is unique to me. It's made up of everything that is me. It's not the characteristics of, or labels or things that others identify me as, with or by. It's what I am behind all of them. It's my love of nature. It's the glee I get standing at the top of a mountain of mud and splashing in a puddle of rain. It's the emotion that wells up inside me when I see somebody I'm working with stand taller because they realise they've got an ability that they hadn't acknowledged before. It's the smile on a stranger's face as they pass me by on the street just after I've remembered something that made me grin, which happened two days ago. Though my pitch and my tone and my mannerisms may adapt to the language I speak, my identity, the core, the heart of what I am does not. English is the global lingua franca. Bilingual professionals all over the world are trained to think they have to change their identity to fit into English-speaking workplaces. They're trained to think they're not good enough if they can't sound like the imperialised view of what a native English speaker sounds like. They're trained to think they're not good enough if they can't structure sentences perfectly or if they suddenly forget a word. They're not trained to realise that they forget words in their own language and make grammatical mistakes. They're not trained to realise they have an accent in their own language that isn't the same as the accent used in another part of the country. They're not trained to accept any of these things as normality. English speakers all over the world are trained to expect bilingual professionals to speak perfect English. They're trained to think it's okay to judge them based on their accent or their accuracy. They're trained to think they're not good enough if they can't structure sentences perfectly or if they suddenly forget a word. They're not trained to realise that they forget words when speaking English and make grammatical mistakes, oftentimes more than their bilingual counterparts. They're not trained to realise they have an accent that isn't the same as the accent used by other English speakers. They're not trained to accept any of these things as normality. Language and identification are intertwined. People are categorised by capacity. We attach ourselves to these categories. It's a natural thing for the brain to do. It's what helps us filter for information quickly. It facilitates fast thinking. Automatic top-down processing that we filter when we see things or hear things to help us understand how to treat that thing, whether it's a threat or a reward, safe or not. What we need to do is slow thinking down so that we don't become as attached, so that we can weave new webs of thinking in our brains, form new patterns of thought from old ones, like spiders. Spiders don't get attached. When a spider web breaks, 
The spider eats the silk and recycles it to weave a new thread. If we slow our thinking down, we can stop regurgitating the same threads of thought and create new patterns. To do this, we have to start challenging thinking. We have to be allowed to challenge attitudes. We have to challenge our own. Almost every week now, I hit back at media outlets like joe.ie and Irish Daily that are perpetuating linguistic divides and English speaker arrogance. I'm careful about how I write my comments now, so I don't get too much flack or hate, and so that people can receive them in a way that makes them think. Terminology around language and identity needs to be challenged. Even the term mother tongue. It's defined as a language learned from birth, also called the first language. When I was teaching a speech and drama class a few years ago in Ireland, I had a bilingual student aged about 11 or 12, and she spoke English and Latvian. And I asked her what her first language was, and she looked at me puzzled. I don't know. I speak English and Latvian. I learn both together. Would you tell her she was wrong and she had to choose one as her mother tongue? Irish people, even if they don't have Irish, will often identify Irish as their native language. We're attached to the identity of Irishness. The scars left by the Batish scores are still somewhat sensitive. Last week's shenanigans was a call to challenge the idea that the Irish language should be allowed to die out, that there's pride in not being able to speak. You used to be ashamed of yourself if you only had cupola fuckle, a couple of words. Molly and other Gwail girls out there flip the focus on that shame story. They are celebrating the cupola fuckle we have and encourage us to use them. I said in a reel last week, it's time to flip the focus from Irish unification coming, from Chucky R. Law to Chucky R. Changa. I think maybe I should have added a reesh. I think it works like that. Chucky R. Changa reesh. Our language will come again. As long as we take pride in learning and using it. February 21st was decreed to be International Mother Language Day by the UNESCO General Assembly in 1999. For a reason. The people of Bangladesh, like so many other nations, fought hard and long to keep their national language alive. On February 21st, in 1952, at a rally against the loss of Bangla, police opened fire and took the lives of five men protesting to protect their language. It's the bravery of those who died in Bangladesh, fighting to keep their language alive, and the further actions taken by Bangladeshis that resulted in the recognition of the importance of international languages. The proportion of endangered world languages is higher than all of the world's endangered animal populations put together. When a language dies, with it comes the loss of the perspectives, perceptions and experiences embedded in it. Noam Chomsky said, A language is not just words. It's a culture, a tradition, a unification of a community, a whole history that creates what a community is. It's all embodied in a language. This week, and every other week, embrace your languages. 
however they may or may not have shaped your identity. Find a way to open a conversation with someone else about theirs. Get curious. When you start exploring other languages with the curiosity of a child, you'll be amazed at the patterns you find. At the core of everything is a heart. When we open our hearts to others, we often discover that the seeds that shape the centre are pretty much the same. Just like apples. It's often only the texture and flavour that are different. I love hearing from you when the podcast resonates. And I know that people of different languages listen to the podcast from different parts of the world. Thank you for listening, first of all. I call out to you this week. If something has resonated with you, moved you, made you think about your language in a different way, or you've explored and got curious about another language, I would love to hear about it. Share the story with me. And then maybe, if you're open to it, I might be able to share a few of the stories in a future episode. Please share the podcast with someone who you think will enjoy it. Get others whose mindset could do with a little bit of a kick in the right direction to listen to it too. Like, share and follow to make sure it gets heard. Enjoy International Mother Language Week. Enjoy embracing other languages and cultures, however they may shape your identity. As I always close, in some of the words taught by the beautiful Irish with Molly, Gajian Kedurala. Until next time. Banat Ti. August Puyakas. <laughs>